Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today I'm chatting with Sharon Hudgens, a Texan who moved to Siberia after the fall of the Soviet Union. Hudgens loved the food, which ranged from cabbage pies to caviar to kimchi, the people, the culture, and the Trans-Siberian Railway, despite the dining car's shortcomings. They would have a 10-page menu, but there were only two items on the whole menu they actually had. You'd say, I want to order this, and they go, we don't have it. And then you want to say, I want to order that. No, we don't have that either. And so you finally get to the point point, say, what do you have? 
and they tell you we've got uh, goulash, which was some kind of mystery meat in a pastry brown gravy, and a sauerkraut salad, and that was it. Also coming up, we decide which cooking oil is better than the rest. We share a recipe for Lebanese comfort food, mahadra, which is lentils and rice. But now it's my interview with James Brissione, chef and author of The Flavor Matrix, the art and science of pairing common ingredients to create extraordinary dishes. James, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. So the setup is you were working with IBM's Watson computer for something called the Watson Project. Uh, and what was that project? So the engineers, some of the engineers from IBM came to us with this idea that they knew Watson could answer any question that there was out there, but they wanted to see if Watson could help people be more creative. And they decided to first test that in the culinary field to see if Watson could help a chef be more creative. And I thought they were crazy. And were they? Uh, they were not. I was <laughs> I was the one who was well surprised by this. You know, 15 years in the kitchen, I thought there's no way a computer knows more about cooking than I do. I can see, I can smell, I can touch, I can taste. A computer can't do these things. What ideas could it possibly have? So before we get into uh, what you actually did, let's go through some definitions. Uh, taste and flavor are two very different things. So why don't you start by defining each of those? Taste is the sensations that happen on the tongue. Uh, you know, sour, sweet, bitter, salty, fat, and umami. So when we're talking about taste, we really should only be talking about those six sensations that are reported from the tongue to the brain. Everything else that you experience when you take a bite of food is flavor. It comes from aromatic compounds, little molecules in the food that travel up into your, into your nose and tell your brain what flavor this actually is. And But some of this is really complicated because you refer to a volatile compound in strawberries. You said the quote, does not taste like fruit at all. It has the aroma of baked bread, butter, and toasted almond. Yet if it were removed from a strawberry, the fruit taste would change dramatically. So when you think of strawberry, there are volatile compounds in a strawberry that don't have the odor of strawberries. Yeah, exactly. So you know, there's a couple compounds in isolation that sort of smell like a strawberry. But the aroma, the flavor of a fresh strawberry is made up of, of about 500 different compounds. And they all kind of play a different part. I like the analogy of pixels in a photograph. If you, if you look at a photograph of the beach you're going to see white sand, blue and green water, blue sky. Uh, but if you zoom in close enough on that sand, you might see orange and pink pixels in there. And if you took those pink and orange away, the sand wouldn't look the same. So they're not things that the naked eye is seeing, just like, you know, uh, mesofurane you were talking about with a, with a strawberry that smells like buttered bread and toast and almonds. Uh, mesofurane, you're not going to smell that in a fresh strawberry. But if you take it away, the fresh strawberry is not going to smell the same. So one of the outcomes of this is a book called The Flavor Matrix, and let's just describe it. So you'd have an ingredient like asparagus at the center of this, this radiant circle, and then connected to it in different rays would be a variety of different compounds. It's, that's probably a really terrible description. Maybe you can do better. <laughs> Yeah, so so with asparagus, we we built uh, fifty eight different pairing charts, and really the whole you know idea of the book is to to teach people you know what ingredients, not just what ingredients go well together, but but why they do. Okay, so let's just take chicken or strawberry. So 
What input data did you provide, and how did Watson then calculate these flavor matrices? So what Watson would do is, is look at the compounds in, in chicken. Uh, you try to identify some of the ones that are most prominent, that are you know, most responsible for flavor, have the higher, higher concentrations, and then go to find those matching compounds in other foods. There were some surprise flavor pairings. How about bell peppers with stone fruit? or stone fruit with beer. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so so a really good match. And one of the things, you know, I kind of learned to do through this process was start to identify ingredients down to their aromas. So, uh, you know, when we talk about beer, one of the first things that I think of is, is hops. If you isolated the compounds in hops and isolated the compounds in lemon peel, you'd have a hard time telling the difference between the two. So, you know, when you think about it, say, okay, a hoppy beer, that's basically just citrus. That's like adding lemon zest to a recipe. And when you think about the ingredient that way, then, you know, another fruit, you know, like a stone fruit is, is a really natural, fantastic match. Okay, it's time, it's time for a quiz now. Uh, you're cooking home midweek. Uh, you're going to make spaghetti and marinara sauce, which everybody does. Mm-hmm. How would you think about changing that up based on your Watson experience? Oh, well, that's too easy because there's a recipe in the book for that, Chris. Well, I'm helping you out here, man. That, that was a softball. <laughs> that's what we call it in radio world. <laughs> softball. All right. <laughs> um, if it is Wednesday night and you, you want to get it on the table quick, to get that you know, really great kind of tannic depth and some of that herbaceousness, I'm going up into the cabinet and pulling out black tea. Huh. Just a very small little pinch. It, it mimics. It, it has really? a lot of the similar aromas to oregano and marjoram, but it's going to give you more of those tannins and more of that depth into the tomato sauce as well. That's a surprise and, and lovely answer. Okay. Um, so uh, n- now you're going to grill a steak. So I want, you know, for, for me, the, the steak is all about that depth and that char on the outside. And char is bitter. Um, and, and we actually want to kind of reach in and grab some of that and, and embrace it. So, you know, when we, think about, when we think about things like that, you know, this kind of this earthiness and smokiness, uh, dried chilies, cocoa powder, mushroom powder. These are the things that are going to go really great on the outside of a steak, give it some, some fabulous aroma, and really enhance that char or you know, that, that depth of, and, and that browning on the outside. And finally, uh, the bane of everyone's existence, the roast chicken. <laughs> uh, well, it doesn't have to be the bane, but it, how would you make it better than usual? Um, dairy is really such a great match for chicken. I love a good yogurt rub on chicken. Um, and, you, you know, if you can, again, layer in some spices, you know, add some chili in with that yogurt and cilantro, cilantro stems. Last is, do you see home cooking starting to change a lot now in the last few years? Or do you think it's pretty much a continuum for where we've been for a long time? No, I, th- I think it is changing a lot. And I think technology is doing so much of it. You know, now it's like every every guy who has a good grill set up is now a uh, huge fan of, of sous vide as well. And, you know, and then you've got the, the uh, automated pressure cookers on the other side. I think I see more and more project cooking happening. Hmm. You know, someone's going to invest four hours on the weekend to, to make something truly amazing, you know, and then, you know, maybe – or at least this is the way I do it. I tend to try to utilize you know, parts of that recipe throughout the week as well for my, for my quick weeknight meals. James, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 
And uh, now we know that a computer can cook. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. This is great. That was James Brissione, author of The Flavor Matrix. Bill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can listen and subscribe anytime on your favorite podcast app. Now it's time to take your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Joel. Hi, Joel. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I don't know. Sarah, how are we? We're good. I guess we're, we're good. We're very good. I've been told we're good. So <laughs> how can we help you? Well, I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. Sure. I had a quick question uh, regarding fermentation before I poison myself and my girlfriend. Oh, dear. That's okay. scary. Well, the, the answer is don't do it. Yeah, Whatever, whatever might, you're about yeah, to do. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's good. Um, so essentially, I am uh, looking to do a few different recipes with fermentation. One of them I saw on Bon Appetit where they took some garlic and they put it in honey and they let it kind of open air ferment for a while. Just curious um, on safety tips that you guys have for making sure that I don't get salmonella or anything like that. Well, I would ask, why do you want to ferment garlic in honey? Yeah, so um, their application for it was... You could just eat it raw. And then um, the honey, they actually took it with a pastry brush and they uh, put it on the crust of a sweet and savory pizza. So uh, just, an I thought, an interesting recipe that I'd like to try. Well, I, I've, I interviewed Brad on the show. He does the fermentation, as you know, YouTube videos for Bon Appetit. And he's fabulous. A terrific guy. I think the concern I would have is I'm not sure that honey as a fermentation vehicle sounds a little dicey, dicey. to me. I can see making kimchi. Yeah. I can see making other things. Salt, Sauerkraut. Salt involved there, too. Because yep. you're creating something that's much safer to ferment. Gotcha. You know, it reminds me, I mean, I think that you could get the same effect with minced garlic and honey drizzled on, you know, or infused, you know, like take some honey in a little saucepan with a smashed clove of garlic and warm it up a bit and then use that as your glaze for your pizza and get almost the same effect. So in general, in terms of fermenting other things, you know, because I am going to do other things as well, like uh, kimchi, stuff like that. Just any general safety tips? I think Brad, in his videos, I've watched quite a few of them, he always talks about... pH. Well, pH, but he talks about you can smell it, and if there's bubbling, and, and there are a lot of visual clues... Okay. Uh, you can smell it and you can see it. When it goes off, it goes off. I think yeah. it's pretty easy. This is a case where I'm not quite sure you'd be able to, to notice. Yeah. Great. All right, Joel. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Yeah, bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name's Laura. Where are you calling from? Boston. What can we help you with today? Uh, so a couple months ago, I made a cornbread and... I doubled the recipe, which was new for me, and I made it in a cast iron skillet, which was right. new for me. And when it came out of the oven, it had separated, and there was almost like this custard layer and a cake layer below it. Laura, when you made it the first time and it worked, how did you make the recipe? Well, usually in the past like couple years, I've started um, using coarse cornmeal or like the polenta cornmeal. And I try to use buttermilk if I can remember to have it in the house. And flour, sugar, 
Eggs. Eggs, yeah. And usually I melt the butter. Did you preheat the cast iron pan in the oven while the oven was heating? I did. This is a silly question. Do you think it maybe just needed to bake longer? Well, I thought that at first because, like, I, you know, I put a fork in it or a toothpick in it, and it came out, and it was dry. And then I looked at it, and, you know, because it looked like custard, I thought, oh, my God, it's totally raw. And I put it back in the oven, and I baked it for, like, five more minutes, and then I realized that it wasn't changing, and then I cut into it, and it really was just, like, two separate layers. Do you use the same oven temperature both times, single recipe, double recipe? Yeah. Which was what, 400? I think it was like 400 or 425. 425, that's what they say. And what part was liquid? The top was liquid. I wonder if it just needed to bake more. It wasn't really a custard. It sounds like it was just unbaked batter. I would try a slightly lower temperature, like 375, and I would bake it a lot longer. Now, if you preheat the pan... The bottom and sides are going to crisp up and, and set fast because the, that cast iron is real hot. But you need a lot more baking time with double the batter. Oh, that's great. That, so I got scared that maybe it was because I used the coarse cornmeal or the polenta. So the cornmeal, did you make a mash? No. You just added cornmeal to the dry ingredients? Yeah. I've made this a lot. Uh, I used to make it in a cast iron skillet in Vermont all the time. And I think the recipe I ended up with made a mash of hot water or hot milk, whatever. Really? With a cornmeal. And you make that mash, then you incorporate it into the rest of the batter. Really? will absorb liquid better. That seemed to work pretty well. Okay. And just increase the baking time, reduce the oven temperature a bit. I think it'll work. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. All right. right. There you go. Thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call. 855-426-9843, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, guys. This is Whitney calling from Vancouver, Washington. Hi, Whitney. How can we help you today? So I have a question regarding sugar. I've noticed that some baking recipes call for specific types of sugar, like castor or turbinado. However, I usually only have cane sugar on hand, so I was wondering whether it's important to use a specific sugar the recipe calls for, or is it okay to get away with just using cane sugar? I wouldn't swap one sugar for the other for the most part. Okay. Uh, you know, it depends on what we're talking about. I mean, certainly light brown for dark brown and vice versa. But other than that, I really wouldn't. How about you, Chris? If you're asking whether a recipe calls for muscovado or something else in a recipe, they're doing that because it has more flavor. White sugar has no flavor. Correct. So if you can get that other darker sugar with more flavor, the recipe will taste better. We did a bunch of taste tests a few months ago with blondies, and we use white cane sugar plus a bunch of other darker, less refined sugars. And we vastly prefer the less refined sugars for flavor. However, you can obviously substitute white sugar for those and it'll bake up fine. To take the opposite, where it calls for white cane sugar, I think if it was an angel food cake, if it was a very light, delicate baked good, I would stick with white cane sugar because some of those other sugars have more moisture content, they're heavier. You might get a difference in texture. But if a recipe calls for a dark sugar, if you can find it, use it. You'll get more flavor. If you can't, it's fine. Okay, so here's the question, though. So turbinado, which is coarser, right? Mm -hmm. Cup for cup, is it the same? 
Well, hopefully the recipe would weigh the sugar. Well, if it's Milk Street, yes, but most aren't Milk Street and don't list it in grams. They're not the same. It's like kosher salt and table salt. That's an excellent question. So you can't do it cup for cup is the problem. In the tests we did for Blondie's, Mm -hmm. we used a volume measurement, Mm -hmm. and we didn't see a difference. I think if it was a very delicate cake, you know, the accursed Genoise, (laughs) something like that. Chris and I hate the Genoise. So if it was a very delicate Mm -hmm. recipe, maybe, but Mm -hmm. something that's heartier, you're not going to have to worry about the little sugar, more or less, isn't going to make a huge difference. Unlike salt, where it would. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for calling. Okay, Whitney. Thank you. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, my interview with Sharon Hudgens, author of T-Bone Wax and Caviar Snacks, Cooking with Two Texans in Siberia and the Russian Far East. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. 
I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagashoid. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Sharon Hudgens and her husband Tom were two of the first Americans to live in Siberia an area that had been largely off-limits to Americans for decades. They moved to Vladivostok to help launch the University of Maryland's new Russian-American program. Hudgens recounts her adventures in Siberia in her latest book, T-Bone Wax and Caviar Snacks. Sharon, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. I'm pleased to be here today. So you show up in Vladivostok in what year? 1993? The middle of 1993, yes. Okay, so just describe to us the place and sort of your arrival. Okay. Well, this was just 18 months after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and the Russian university provided apartments, furnished apartments for us. And our first apartment was on the fifth floor of a building, and uh, it did have an elevator, but you never used the elevator because the electricity was so erratic, you didn't want to get stuck in the elevator for a couple of days <laughs> between floors. Well, that erratic electricity was a problem in the kitchens, too. The kitchens were small. This was a 700-square-foot apartment. We had the luxury of a refrigerator. A lot of other people just kept things refrigerated on the little balcony attached to their apartment. And we had a three-burner stove that soon came to be called the stove from hell, because when we did have electricity, if you turned on all three burners at once, it blew out all the electricity in half the apartment. <laughs> and it could take a week to get it fixed. So the appliances were a problem, the uh, lack of consistent uh, public utilities, not just electricity, but water, for instance. The water from the taps in our kitchen and bathroom ran purple, orange, black, amber in color, <laughs> sometimes clear. And it smelled like ham one day, rotten <laughs> eggs the next, petroleum the next, and left this terrible black sludge throughout the, the sink. But, but still, with all of that, you fell in love, I guess, with Siberia, yes? I did. It's, it's a beautiful part of the world. It has um, 
a huge range of landscapes. You know, there's this misconception that Siberia is this big, vast, frozen wasteland. And instead, I mean, it's it's several thousand miles across. It's at least a thousand miles in some places more from north to south. And so it's got everything from 10,000-foot snow-capped mountains to grassy steppes to beautiful forests. So there's a big variety of landscapes. It's beautiful. And um, the food, there's quite a variety of food out there. Now, let's talk about the culture a little bit. Uh, A lot of Russians, I guess at the time, still believed or sort of believed in house spirit who lives underneath or behind the stove. And I I think you you eventually started blaming the spirit on all the bad things that happened as well. (laughs) That's true. He's called the Domovoy. And he can do bad things or good things. Uh, depending on how you treat him and depending on the kind of mood he's in. And this is something that that Russians throughout the country have believed in for for many hundreds and hundreds of years. And so he's kind of an explanation for things that go wrong. And I, I remember one time we had been making something where we had to separate a lot of eggs, and I had a little pan with 11 egg whites sitting in the small entry hall of the apartment. And Tom went in there to change shoes and tumped all the 11 egg whites into one of his shoes. And we had guests coming for dinner right after that. So we blamed it on the Domovoy, which is what you do. (laughs) It's better than blaming on your husband. Um, Of course not. (laughs) Some other things, little things. uh, If a cup or plate breaks, it's good luck. But if it's glass or porcelain, it's not. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, if it breaks, it's good luck. But if it chips, then you've got to throw it away. And so a friend of mine, when she was moving, she had a a set of six champagne glasses and five got chipped and she just barely, just on the base. And they were quite usable and she couldn't bear to throw them away. But then her mother came to visit her and saw that she had these five chipped glasses in the house, which was very bad luck. So she tossed everything in the trash right away. So there are a lot of superstitions like that. Modern Russians laugh about them now, but they will say, oh, yes, my grandmother always thought that or my grandmother always did that. Let's talk about food uh, in your book, T-Bone Wax and Caviar Snacks. You mentioned you purchased a huge live Kamchatka crab, which you ate for a couple of days. So it must have been pretty big. So how big <laughs> was it? And, and so you bought a live crab and just took it home in a paper bag? Yes, because Vladivostok is a big port. It was Russia's largest port on the Pacific Ocean. And so one day, one of my Russian friends said, the crab ship is in. Quick, let's go to the port. Well, it's an hour and a half, two tram rides to get down to the port. But we got down there, and there were guys selling crabs off the deck of the ship. And I had no idea how big they were. I couldn't tell because they were just standing up on this rusty deck high above me with these crab. So I just gave them the signal for the medium-sized $7.50 one, and they tossed the crab down, one (laughs) for me and one for my Russian friend. Well, the thing was huge. And so we each tried to stuff it into our big shopping bags. How big? It's like two feet across or something? Shoo, yeah, 18 inches to two feet. Two feet with the wiggly uh, claws and all, and (laughs) you know. And so we stuffed these live crabs into our shopping bags, one each. And it was another hour and a half back on two tram rides to get to our apartment. And my husband and I decided we were going to have to figure out how to cook this crab. And we'd never cooked a live crab before. 
So we remembered that scene in Annie Hall with the yeah, lobsters. Yeah, with the lobster butter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And so we, you know, we heated a big pot of water and we stuffed that poor crab in it. I really feel bad about that now. But I didn't feel bad about it when I was eating the crab later because that was an absolutely delicious crab. My Russian friend, the next day I told her this experience, and she said, oh, I haven't cooked mine yet. And I went, well, what did you do with it? And she said, well, I left it in the my shopping bag in our little entry hall, and during the night it got out, <laughs> and it was going down through the hall and through the rooms, and my kitten was following it, and the last time I saw them, they were both under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how she ever cooked her crab. <laughs> and back in the 90s, if you went to buy meat, uh, you said those uh, those meat markets were not for the squeamish. <laughs> Absolutely. There was no such thing. First, there was no such thing as a supermarket, period. You didn't go and go to the meat counter of a supermarket or the meat section and buy meat that was on styrofoam trays already cut and wrapped in, in plastic wrap. What you did was go to a farmer's market or maybe the municipal market in the center of the city. And so the people who sold meat had the carcass of the animal, whether it was a pig or a cow or whatever. And you would just tell them what weight you wanted, 500 grams or a kilogram. And they would just take the carcass and an axe and whack it off. And so you never knew what kind of cut of meat you were going to get. Or could you request that? No, you got whatever whack was given to you by weight. And so that's one of the reasons that that I titled the book T-Bone Whacks and Caviar Snacks, because we were always thrilled when we would get a whack that was a a, a T-bone. Have you been back to Vladivostok in the last few years? Yes. Yes, I have. I have worked on five tours with National Geographic, and they were uh, Trans-Siberian Rail Tours that started in Vladivostok and went to Moscow. So I've, I've gotten to see Vladivostok several times that way. And I've worked with uh, Smithsonian more recently on t- uh, Trans-Siberian Rail Tours also. So, yes, I have been out there, and I've been to the other city that we lived in, Irkutsk. So uh, how different in the last 25 years are they? Very, very, very different. Uh, when we lived there, there were no restaurants where you could just say, I don't feel like cooking dinner tonight, let's go out. Or let's call in for takeout pizza or takeout Chinese. But now there are restaurants everywhere, from fast food restaurants to uh, Derner Kebab or shawarma stands, uh, European-style coffee houses and pastry shops. When we lived there, it was dull and gray and still looked like it did in Soviet times. So it's really, it's a much, much more colorful place. Uh, let's go back to the Trans-Siberian Railroad for a moment. Um, I was surprised, uh, around 1900, they said the, there were first-class dining cars for wealthy travelers with, you know, wild game, filet mignon, et cetera. So it had a, it had a sort of uh, Orient Express moment. What, what was that train like uh, back in the 90s, and what is it like today? You are quite right. Back in 1900, uh, which was uh, about halfway through the building of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, they began to add dining cars to the trains. And up until World War I, they actually had uh, supposedly very good food service on those. And then after the Soviet era 
or beginning with the Soviet era, the food supply was so limited, they would have a 10-page menu, but there were only two items on the whole menu they actually had. <laughs> and, and then so, it so wasn't very So how did you good. know that they would just tell you we only have these two things? Yes, yes. You'd say, I want to order this, and they go, we don't have it, you know. <laughs> And, and then you want to say, I want to order that. No, we don't have that either. And so you finally get to the point and say, what do you have? Right. And they tell you we've got uh, goulash, which was some kind of mystery meat right. in a pastry brown gravy, you know, nothing nothing good, and a sauerkraut salad, and that was it. So what people did was that you either brought your own food with you to eat on the train, especially long-distance train trips, and or you uh, bought it from the platform vendors along the way at the station right. on the station platforms, and that's really really neat way to eat. But like 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 what would you buy uh, along the way? Okay, well if you're out in the Russian Far East, if you're starting in Vladivostok by train, you would buy things like salmon caviar in a jar, hmm. or you would buy uh, fresh seafood that people would bring. But once you get more toward the interior. There's a lot of the kind of Russian home cooking that is, uh, say, boiled potatoes with sautéed mushrooms and fresh herbs on top, or little little pies, little things like little fried pies and little baked pies, milk and kefir and yogurt. Um, a, a lot of the food, unfortunately, now in the present, I've noticed, is is much more prepackaged and uh, the kind of thing you just might buy at a kiosk or something. I'm always interested in the connection between happiness and prosperity. Would you say that the people you met on your first trip were happier or less happy than when you've gone back uh, 10, 20 years later? I think they were less happy because of the uncertainties of the economic problems going on out there. A lot of the older people had a saying that it was better when it was worse meaning it was better under the Soviet times. People weren't all that happy out there. They, they weren't sure if their, their job was still going to be a, a job for them. They weren't getting paid their salary. Firemen and policemen were getting paid their salary. They were happy that they were now free to travel to foreign countries, but they didn't have the money to travel to foreign countries. And so... They were happy to meet foreigners who could come now like we could and live in their countries, which wouldn't have been possible before to live in Siberia where we lived. But still, it was very, very hard on them. So did you, coming from a very wealthy country, did you learn something uh, interesting about, about happiness or about how to live your life as a result of this experience? Yes, yes. I think one of the things that I really learned about it was the importance of family to the Russians. When you went home, the people you were dealing with and the family life that you constructed was the good side of life. And the difficulties were when you went out and were, you know, dealing with uh, bureaucrats at work or dealing with lack of income because, you know, there was no pay right now because of what's happening. That was the harder side of life. But people still that I knew, they I don't think that they felt in any way sort of emotionally deprived. I think they felt materially deprived. And they were able to balance that in a way that I admired. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us at Mill Street. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you, Chris. 
That was Sharon Hudgens. Her latest book is called T-Bone Wax and Caviar Snacks, Cooking with Two Texans in Siberia and the Russian Far East. Hudgens talks about dining on the 5,800-mile Trans-Siberian Railroad, which used to serve mystery meat, but today I guess the food can be first class. That reminds me of our railroads. Before 1870, passengers brought their own food or ate quickly at boarding house restaurants along the way, a menu of rancid meat, cold beans, and old coffee. By 1870, the Transcontinental Railroad stretched all the way to California, and the dining improved. In fact, by the 1920s, railroad dining was often a four-star experience, with lobster americon and duck with Cumberland sauce. Of course, today, if you buy a first-class ticket on Amtrak from Boston to New York, you get, well, airline food and warm nuts with your soda. So if the Russians can serve good railway food in Siberia, why can't we? Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about my favorite new comfort food, Mahudra. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I was recently in Beirut. I was invited by Anissa Elou, who's a cookbook author. She's been on the show. And uh, she was there to visit her mother, and I spent a few days with her. The one recipe I took away from this that I loved the most was mahudra, which is rice, lentils, and fried onions. It takes about 15, 20 minutes to make. I visited a guy called Hussein Hadid. He owns the Umi restaurant, which is sort of a combination between old-style cooking and sort of fresher foods. It's so simple, but it's all natural, and it's just absolutely delicious. So I brought it back to Milk Street, and what did we do? So, Chris, this is so simple, just lentils, rice, and these great crispy onions. When you had it in Beirut, the lentils were a little bit firmer. When we tried to make this here, we kind of liked it a little bit softer, a little closer to the texture of the rice. So what we did here was allow the lentils to cook a little bit before we add the rice. That way everything kind of finishes up at the same time. I think time. he cooked the rice and lentils at the, at the same amount of time. Which was sort of interesting, I thought. Right. It, and then that, that's great, and it yields just a little bit of more toothsome lentil. We liked ours a little bit softer here, so we let ours cook a little bit longer at the front end, so everything kind of still ends up finishing at the same time. Now, are these the green lentil de puy? Are these brown lentils or what? Brown lentils, and that's pretty much what you're going to find in most supermarkets anyway. So the onions, you just slice them and then throw them in a nonstick skillet or a skillet with oil? A skillet with oil. And these are fried onions, which I feel like we don't see a lot in this country. You know, we see a lot of caramelized onions. We see a lot of battered fried onions. But these are crispy fried onions. So you're just cooking onions in a lot of oil, almost to the point where they get really brown. Not burnt, but they do kind of maintain the bitterness of the onion flavor. They're not very sweet, but they have this really nice crispy texture. Goes great on top of this rice and lentil. Yeah, because the rice and lentils texturally are, are sort of soft, and the flavor is plain, I would say, but it's, it's the fried onions on top that add a little bitterness and punch to it, and that's why it's such a great dish. Right. It's a great contrast. We add a little bit of aromatics in with the water when we cook the lentils and rice, some garlic, some cumin, and some allspice. But beyond that, you're getting a lot of that flavor from these onions. So it's kind of a critical element to the dish and really takes it from just rice and lentils to something really cool and different. So rice, lentils, and fried onions, Lebanese comfort food, less than half an hour. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Lebanese lentils and rice with crisped onions at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman explains why he has no qualms at all lying to his kids about food. 
That's coming up in just a moment. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will be taking more of your culinary questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Renee from Orange Park, Florida. Hi, Renee. How can we help you today? Well, um, my question has to do with, I grew up in the Midwest, and my mom used to make minced ham. We'd have minced ham sandwiches, only it wasn't ham, it was bologna. <laughs> um, and she used a grinder that she attached to the edge of the countertop. A hand crank kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. And we always, as kids, wanted to be the ones to grind it and watch it come out. Anyhow, I know she never used mayonnaise with it when she made the substance to mix with it. It was something she cooked on the stove, and it was yellowish in color, and it was thick, and then she'd have to cool it down. Then she would mix it with the meat. Is there possibly a mayonnaise that you cook? (laughs) When I first started, there was something called a boiled dressing. Oh, yeah. This sounds like that. Let me just run this by you. That's right, yeah. So it's essentially eggs or egg yolks, some dry mustard or some kind of mustard, a little bit of flour, a little bit of sugar, and some sort of vinegar. And you'd cook that all together, and it would thicken, and then you'd cool it. Yes. That was it. Does that sound right? That kind of sounds like probably something she would have done. You know, I haven't thought about boil dressing in no, 50 years. me neither. We haven't asked you the key question, how did you like it? You obviously liked it, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you want to make it again. Yeah. I do, and I want to teach my daughter. There are things that she's grown up with that I've cooked that if you're not making it with them or they don't 
ask the questions like I didn't, then those go away. And she's making a call to you guys later in life going, what do I do now about this? (laughs) That's true. So So many recipes went to the grave with Granny, you know, because either Granny didn't want to share it or you didn't ask about it or nobody wrote it down. Oh, I think a lot of them, I know from personal experience, a lot of the Grannies just love the fact they left out a key ingredient. Yeah, that they I mean, could make it, it and you all couldn't. all the time. Yeah. Well, she gave me a lot of her recipes that she hand-wrote down. And, you know, there's some that, you know, they say a glob of this and a scant of that, you know. Oh, yeah. they, well, they often said a walnut of butter, right? Yeah. A walnut was a mount of butter. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you've hit a home run on this one, and Yay. I'm definitely going okay. to um, yeah, Google it. it. <laughs> Renee, give that a shot. I think my co-host here... Got it just right. And I hope it brings back wonderful memories. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, it is worth having you around. Well, that, you know, that, that was this... really good. Well, thank you. I've got some no, that's, that was old-fashioned good. I, you know, I knowledge. seriously had not thought about boiled dressing in a million years. Since I was, like, you know, a little kid. Yeah. I remember yeah. that in the book. Okay, uh, next call. Yeah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Where are you calling from? Pennsylvania. What can we help you with today? I have a problem with lemon meringue pie, the bottom crust getting soggy. I have tried numerous things and uh, nothing works. Do you pre-bake the crust? Yes. Pretty substantially? Oh, yes. Done. Hmm. Then I wonder if you're filling... I'm glad I let you take this call. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> no. Well, there's many different possibilities okay. here. There's many different okay. suspects. Tell us about okay. your lemon filling, how you do that. Um, it's basically a boxed filling. Okay. And the crust is a pie crust that you blind bake, right? Yes. My own dough. I have even um, did the egg mixture. You brush a little bit of egg white or egg, or uh, beaten, beaten egg, beaten on, egg on it. Correct. How long do you pre-bake the crust and at what temperature? Oh, I think it's 425 probably till the crust is done. I might try 375 and you'll mm-hmm. use aluminum foil and beans, right, or something. And I would bake it for about 25 minutes, 375, and don't take the foil off until the, the crust feels dry. It's really set. Actually, you could bake it the entire time. That's what we do now with aluminum foil. You don't have to take it off, but make sure it's really, really nicely cooked mm-hmm. because you're not going to have to cook it that long afterwards, right? Yes. This filling goes in to the fully baked crust and then just goes in the fridge, or do you actually bake the pie with a filling in it? I've tried different ways because I put a meringue on. I thought maybe it had something to do with the meringue. I would make sure the crust is really well baked. It should get a good dark color. And then also, you could try this other trick. Take, like, some graham crackers and put them in a food processor and put a sort of Mm -hmm. layer at the bottom of those. That tends to absorb Absorb a little bit of extra liquid to help keep the crust. Not a graham cracker crust, but basically graham crackers on the bottom layer. Yeah, just a little bit on the bottom of the pre-baked shell. And sometimes mm-hmm. that'll absorb some of that so you're extra saying, liquid. Pre-bake the shell, put on the ground-up yeah. crumbs, mm-hmm. and then put on okay. the lemon filling, and then yeah. put on the meringue. So you do bake it when you have the lemon filling in there. You don't. No, the hot filling no, goes I in the pie shell the and meringue. Then it sets. And it doesn't matter if the pudding's hot. The pudding should be hot. Okay, I've got an answer for you. 
I would put the hot pudding in a hot crust. Don't let the crust okay. cool down. As soon as you take that crust out of the oven, it's pre-baked, immediately okay. put the hot pudding in the hot crust. Now, see, that is the only thing I haven't done. There you go. So no, that, I don't know help. if that'll be the answer because then I thought, well, yeah. I'm going to call. No, if you make pumpkin pie or any custard pie, and these are usually, then they put it back in the oven, but a hot filling in a hot crust gives you a nice crust that does not get soggy. That's so interesting. Okay, thank you for um, helping me out. I yeah, my, our pleasure. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. This is Most Street Radio. It's time for this week's cooking tip. We got a question recently from Megan from Washington about which oil to use for high heat sautéing. You know, everybody knows that some oils will start to smoke at low temperatures, some at high. So we went into the kitchen at Milk Street to do a test. The winner was grapeseed oil, has a neutral flavor and a very high smoke point. If a recipe calls for vegetable oil, we just turn to grapeseed oil. By the way, we avoid canola oil since it develops, well, it's really kind of a fishy flavor when heated. The biggest surprise in our test, however, is that processed olive oils, like a light olive oil, actually has a very high smoke point, so go ahead and use that if you like. Now, one last thing. All oils go rancid pretty quickly, so take a quick sniff before using. A good oil has a very mild scent with no off flavors. For more culinary tips and ideas, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's regular contributor and sometimes troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, how are you? I'm doing good, Chris. Hey, I wanted to check in on your family. How old is young Oliver now? Uh, young Oliver's almost 21 months. He's uh, he's young. Wow, coming yeah. up on two years. And is he starting to uh, express more opinions about food? What, what do you mean by more? <laughs> I mean, no, we, we have a full range of, of, of yeses and nos, mostly nos. No, but he eats, um, he eats, he eats a lot of different things. And, and I mean, I know you have five kids of, of yeah. a wide range of ages. How do you deal with it? Because now my kids are getting older and they're starting to like more of the foods that I like, which is fun sometimes when there's enough to go around and we can share it. But it's a problem when there's only enough for daddy. <laughs> I, you know, you know. A minute ago, I thought this conversation was going to go in a very different direction. <laughs> I admit that sometimes I lie to my kids about food. What you? There's none left. You mean? I'll tell them something is spicy when it's not, because mm-hmm. that will that will scare them off. They won't want any. I'll tell them it's too hot and they have to wait, and then hopefully they get distracted and they forget. These are some of the the tricks of the trade, as I like to see them. In an age of social media, I'm not sure this is going to work out too well for you. Um, (laughs) Have you ever employed any of these techniques? Uh, Yes, of course. (laughs) All parents do. Tell tell me how. Well, no, I I take the opposite tack. I'm usually trying to convince them to eat something they don't want to eat. So I, I make up reasons why the furiyaki seasoning, which is incredibly hot, is actually fine, you know. In small amounts. <laughs> right. But we're, but we're both lying is the point, Chris. I've said for many years that lying to your kids uh, under the right circumstances is great. I mean, for example, uh, I think I've told you the story <laughs> when I made my first cake. I was eight or nine years old, and it was just horrendous. My parents said it was delicious. Now, they were lying, 
But that that was the basis for my entire career was that moment. So yeah, thanks, Ma and Pa Kimball. Yeah. You know where would Chris be without that lie? Selective lying, I think, is okay. You just have to be selective. Yeah, yeah, it's an integral part of good parenting. I think. I think it's essential. Yeah. So so what's tell me a specific lie you told your kids to get them to eat something they didn't want to eat? Well, I, I tell them it's just like eating fill in the blank. So. Right. Whatever their favorite food is, I'll say it's just like eating marshmallows and chocolate or this is better than chicken tenders. Right. At the end of the day, look, at the end of the day, there's no way you can con your kids into eating stuff. They might try it once, but ultimately they'll eat what they want. And you just have to give them choices that are reasonably healthy. But you, you can't affect their their eating choices, really, by through verbal <laughs> connivance, right? Right. I think that's true. I agree with that. But w- w- so when you told your kids this tastes just like marshmallows and chocolate syrup or whatever, and then they bite into that broccoli floret, have you ever gotten a look like, you lied to me? Yeah. And then and then I say, yeah, I did. <laughs> but it was in a good cause. You know, but like, like my five-year-old, Emily, you know, let's say dinner is roast chicken and pasta. She's in it for the pasta. I want her to eat some roast chicken. So I will put the roast chicken in front of her without the pasta, and she'll say, where's the pasta? And I'll say, it's really hot. I just finished cooking it. Start eating the chicken. The pasta will be ready in a minute. That's not true. The pasta was done an hour ago. But by saying that, she's hungry. She'll just start eating the chicken, and she'll end up eating a decent amount of chicken before she gets the pasta. To me, that's good parenting. So so to get back to the philosophical question to resolve this, you, you, your, your stand in mine is that uh, there is something between truth and, and lying. And that all parents indulge themselves because they have to somewhere in between from time to time. I think that's right. I think that I think that the ethics of lying to your kids about food are that that in the right circumstances, it's OK. And I think the takeaway from this segment is that Chris Kimball endorses lying. <laughs> that's right. just, just, just so we both get hit by social media to an equal yeah. extent in the next 24 hours. Dan Pashman on Truth and Lies. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Dan Pashman wonders about the ethics of parenting. Is it okay to lie to your kids to get them to eat a better diet? Well, maybe it's not really lying. I still tell my kids that life is fair, even though I have plenty of data to suggest that it's anything but fair. Inspiring children to believe in the possible may in fact be a good thing. Hope springs eternal. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We're also on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. 
Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tube Up Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.